Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. Today we start a series on Advent. The word Advent, uh, I've never done a dedicated series on Advent. Advent is a church tradition. It's not in the Bible per se. So for those of uh, us here that might have grown up within a liturgical expression of Christian faith, and you say Advent, okay, and there are many different variations on Advent. If you grew up in Roman Catholicism, they'll have a particular emphasis. If you grew up within some Protestant liturgical expression, you'll find that although there are variations on it, you're going to find the four weeks leading up to Christmas, concluding on the Sunday before Christmas, are celebrated, and the emphasis is typically what you will hear most often is hope, peace, joy, and love. And those are the four topics of Advent. Now, why, they're, why it's sort of unique is, is I've probably done more uh, looking into Advent this uh, in the last couple of weeks than I certainly have before, just to get an understanding. I want to say it again. It's born of tradition, but the biblical themes are right in front of us, and they are worthy points of examination. Uh, they don't know when it first came into expression in history, somewhere around 480, 500. The church began to formalize it, and there's records of it then. So it's a church tradition you will hear, you will see written about. But here's the cool thing. The word Advent comes from a Latin term that means expectation. Uh, the Greek term parousia, what it is in Scripture, about the expecting. And see, we are those who expect the coming of Christ. The Advent, of course, the coming of Christ was the first time he came, and we're believing as well there is a second one. So we need to understand as we celebrate Christmas, listen, that expectation and expectancy that was fulfilled in the coming of Christ is what fuels the expectation that he will come again, as he said he would come again. And so we're going to look at these things. Where does hope, peace, joy, and love find place in the story? And of course, as you read the Christmas story, uh, and the, the different narratives in the Gospels, you're going to find all of those elements jump right out at you, the angels declaring joy and peace, and, and of course the, the statement of God sending his son as the highest expression of love. But it starts in hope. And I want to confess to you before I get started uh, that today is going to be one of those, so just sort of get ready. Because what I want to do is if I could make this little table here hope, in other words, this is hope, I want us to create an imaginary circle, if we can, to walk around hope and look at it from all the different angles that hope is um, reinforced in Scripture, but especially why hope is such a centerpiece regarding the birth of Christ. And to that end, literally, as I was talking to a pastor pulling into the parking lot about this and some thoughts even began to distill in my heart, I was in tears. Uh, with, a, with a, a way that it was distilled. And so Amanda, Amanda is our faithful, uh, command, um, uh, runs the command and control over the video presentation. The majority of the scripture I sent you, I probably won't be using, okay? So that's just going to happen today. But listen to this. Hope is the grand, if I were to distill all of the things into one of Tom's sort of personal working definitions, hope is the grand assumption our current reality is not the final word. Hope is the grand assumption that our current reality is not the final word. I want to say it again because, and then we're going to sort of backtrack. Hope is the grand assumption our current reality is not the final word. Now, I want to flash back. These three statements won't be on the screen, but you can go back to the teaching. You can go online and look for September 30th. 
And we studied Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to it and listen to hope. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'm going to read three statements to you that were takeaways from that. You'll have to listen to the teaching to sort of get the, 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 the basis for it. But please listen. And Holy Spirit, well, I just ask you at every juncture today to touch the hearts of your people with hope. And by that, I ask specifically for that definition that suddenly there would begin to be launched a grand assumption that our current reality is not the final word. Because, Father, there are many who sit here today who just the assault and onslaught of life has convinced them, convinced them that much of the current reality is the final word on things. Break that up, dislodge that, and give us a new place of standing before you with uplifted hands and hope in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody say amen right there. Okay, here's the three statements about when hope that come from Hebrews 11. One, when hope is informed by faith, it becomes a conviction. Now, you see, hope is otherwise just wishful thinking. It's not based on anything. It can just be wishing. You know, I hope for this, I hope for that. I'm going to get to it where hope begins to, to morph into something else. But when hope is informed by faith, it becomes a conviction. I want to reread the verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the, 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 um, the conviction of things not seen, the evidence. One says substance and one says evidence in another translation. Second statement, when hope becomes conviction, it causes me to redirect my next step in order to intersect with God's promise. Now, that's important. When hope becomes conviction, see, then my hope takes action. Because when hope becomes a conviction through faith, now I'm going to get to this. I'm, I'm leaving some gaps on purpose, but hang here. It'll, it'll cause me to say, okay, my hope is that will happen, but now faith's in God's word, says that is going to be something that's creating an expectancy, which I'm going to come to in a moment, and I'm going to begin moving in that direction. See, hope can be static, but when it begins to be fueled by faith, it's not static. We begin to take steps. We begin to take steps. Faith will always cause us to take an action. My every next step, the third thing, my every next step will determine if my hope has been informed by faith or fear. You know, in reading the Advents, uh, reading the, the, the stories again, and looking at joy, I found a phrase, because I mentioned fear here, that we'll come to in two more weeks, that I'm just wondering. It's a question to myself, sort of on the front, uh, on, the, on one of the parking lot documents, if you will, uh, in, in my study, to examine over the next two weeks. Because when the angel shows up, it says, he says, don't, don't fear not, but great joy is coming. And so I'm wondering, because I've never thought of fear being the opposite of joy. Never thought of it of being the opposite of joy. So come back in two weeks. We're going to look at that because I just have a suspicion there's something to it. All right? Now, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, again, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I've got to make a, a decision here. Okay? I'm going to make a decision here. And watch me remove two pages of notes. Don't let that um, unduly fuel your anticipation. Okay? Um, the good news for you is what I was looking for doesn't even appear to be here. Hold on a second. I got to tell you, I had the notes prepared and, and then once again on a Sunday morning had some wonderful things happen that, uh, that I wasn't expecting to happen. And it was just the coolest thing in the world.
Here you go. <clears throat> For the believer, um, now, now based on the statement, okay, that if hope, in other words, to move hope, what provides, what moves it is faith. Faith become, allows our hope to be transformed to a conviction. For the believer, then we have to ask, what is faith? And in many times in the past, we've taught, faith is believing God is. In much of the teaching, you'll hear first that faith is believing God can. But Hebrews eleven six. 6, everybody, everybody pay attention to that verse. It's not in, not, you're not going to see it here. Hebrews 11, 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Five verses later, he says, now, those that want to please God, he that cometh to God must believe, same word as faith, must have faith that God is, then there's a semicolon, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The rewarder means when I pray, seek him, ask for things, that things will happen. But first is believing God is who he says he is. The very first place when God presents himself after the fall, in Exodus chapter 3, uh, the whole, after, after the whole book of Genesis, in the book of, of Exodus, when Moses appears before the burning bush, many of you will know that God appears and Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. Now, if there would have been third person standing there who would have been suddenly informed and, and Moses would have looked and said, who did you say he was? He would have said, he is who he is. So I want you to see this he is statement from Hebrews eleven six as co- corresponding to the I am statement. It's a fundamental part of faith here at New Hope, at New Hope Church. That believe, the burning bush says, I am that I am. Now, and this language shows up all throughout the Bible. So faith then is saying, I believe he am. But we wouldn't say it that way. We would say, I believe he is. And so you see then the substance behind Hebrews eleven six. Now, those that want to really have a relationship with God must believe that he is first. Must believe he is. And you know, that's where it starts before you really believe anything else. Before you believe anything that he says, you can't believe anything that he says above any other competing oh, source of information out there if you don't believe that he is. Because why would you believe? Why, why would we even bother to believe? But we do because at some point we say, okay, I'm going to have faith. And believe that he is who he says he is. Because if he's not who he says he is, do not believe what he says he can do. Do not. But see, at the foundation, I know this may seem either elementary or on one hand or confusing on another. Okay, because we believe God is, we then believe his words. That's a sequence of things. The faith, this faith, this faith, believing he is, becomes the substance of hope. That has to happen first. Now. Hope is a wish or desire for a future outcome. Hope without, but here, here, here it comes. But hope without expectation is just a wish. Hope with expectation requires something of substance, which brings us full circle back to what is the substance. It's believing that God is. And you say, dude, you've already worn my brain out. It's Sunday morning. Stay with me. Believing that God is. Can I tell you? The biggest questions in life will not be answered as you come out of the other side of of the situation where you wonder why God didn't do something you expected him to do. And your ultimate retreat, I can tell you this by fact, will be falling back to saying God is. And there's two things that fill in the blank that were the God is statement more than anything else. 
in the Old Testament, it is God is holy. In the New Testament, it is God is love. One does not replace the other. They each inform the other. Now, forgive me. Really, forgive me this morning. I did not intend to become deeply theological, but neither did I want to come and say, Hey, everybody, let's just have hope. You can hope. Let's hope, hope, hope. Everybody hope. Just hope. Why? And then I could... Oh, dude, I read a statement this week that just so wore me out. It was originated on a placemat and has become a social icon. Let me see if I can remember. Practice acts of random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Doesn't that just sound... But the problem is, is you begin to look at the word. When you just look at the statement... And that's so much of what goes on in the world that it sounds so good and it tastes so good in your mouth or your ears when you first hear it. Practice random acts of kindness. Yeah. Except for the problem is if you practice something, it's intentional and it's no longer random. See, the Bible doesn't say practice acts of random kindness. It says, be ye kind to one another on purpose. See, So when Christians, I hear Christians quote something, practice acts of random kindness, as if they've suddenly discovered this neon billboard in their life that's given them purpose. I'm saying, seriously? Have you lost your mind? Are you throwing out the good word of God because we've gotten some social meme that makes us go, oh, that feels warm and fuzzy and tingles on my lips or my ears or someplace. Anybody get that? Until you bother to think about it. The Bible, God says, I don't want you to be kind randomly. I want you to be kind on purpose because Romans chapter 3 says we observe the kindness of God through the love of Jesus Christ as he came and walked on planet. God didn't say, well, I think I'll do a random act of kindness. Oh, look, there's Jesus on the planet. It says he planned it before the foundation of the world. Okay, enough of my soapbox. We now return from the commercial broadcast to our regularly scheduled sermon. But what made me chase that rabbit for a moment was how we talk about hope so whimsically. Come on, dude, hope. There's a a silver lining in every cloud. I don't know about you. Most of the clouds that you can see, once you can see them, they have more lightning than silver. You, you, You ever thought about that? So what do you do when the clouds are dark and there's not light silver, there's lightning? You read Psalms 18. This says God covers himself in dark clouds and uses it to ambush our enemy that's trying to assault us. See, isn't it amazing what the Bible said? Did you even know the Bible said that? That we see dark clouds gathering, Lord, make them go away. God says, nope. I use them as a cover. I can sneak up on the enemy that's trying to ambush you with the clouds. See, there's a way better social mean than practice random acts of cloud chasing or whatever. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, the word of God works. And if I could do one thing every week, it's to get you to leave with an appetite that I really need to go home and read this thing. Because if I will, the Holy Spirit will write it on my heart. Okay, this, I'm getting too long and I don't need to be long. Let me, let me get to my point. I'll, I'll cut the chase. What else do I have here? Um, the question is, back to my point, where do you get the substance for your hopes? And then what does this have to do with Christmas? I, have a, I really wish I could do... 10 weeks on hope from this point, but I'm not. Hebrews chapter 6. Watch this verse. Now let me read you another one. Amanda, it's not on your list. Philippians chapter 1, because I'm going to find it right here real quick. Listen, Listen to Paul talking about this, and let me tell you about it. 
Oh, he says, he's in, he's in jail. So I'm stopping mid-sentence. And he says, yes, I will rejoice. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope. He did get out of prison, by the way. He was there several times. But he says that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Can you leave that up there, please? That I will not be put to shame. Now, I've got to tell you a secret. Now, here, I've never gotten to talk to you guys about this, so, so please hear me. <clears throat> the phrase put to shame. As Paul uses it, you can read in Philippians where Paul says, I'm a good Jewish guy. I was born of a Jewish nation, Jewish tribe, Jewish mom and dad. I was raised and taught the law. Paul uses this phrase shame a lot, and we misread it because we read the term shame within the use of of contemporary culture. For instance, when he says in Romans chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very often, you will hear that verse preached like this. And I don't know that I've taught on it in quite some time. Bless God, you need to be sharing the gospel message because if you're not, that means you're ashamed of the gospel. And if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. But this verse says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that at all. Shame within the Jewish mindset was a term that came from the Jewish law court or justice or if you want to say courtroom, they didn't have a courtroom like we do today. But it was the outcome of the judging of a court and it wasn't so much the way we understand because when they would go to court, they didn't have a a state prosecutor. They just had one person representing one thing and one person representing another. The one who would lose or shown to be wrong was the one who would be ashamed or shamed. So it's entirely, as a matter of fact, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if those are students of the scripture can write this down. When Paul takes a shot at the Christians, he says, what are you guys doing taking each other to court? Don't you know at the end of the age, you're going to judge angels? He says, this is to your shame. It's a play on words. See, because the whole purpose of the court was to decide who was right and who was wrong or who should be shamed. So here's what, uh, back to Romans chapter 1, free message today you didn't expect to see coming because I didn't expect to teach it. Paul says, here's what I know, I'm going to live my life and whether I'm alive at the return of Jesus Christ or I die and I see him in the resurrection, here's what I'm absolutely confident of. You can put me in jail, you can do anything you want to me, you can send me here, reject this or that, but at the end of the age, I am absolutely confident and I'm persuaded that I can trust in him until the very end day that when it's all said and done, the gospel that I believed in and the gospel that I preach will not leave me on the wrong side of the equation, it will not bail out and leave me me in the wrong spot. It will not leave me on the downside of anything. Beloved, if you go back and you read about shame in the Old Testament, you know what they would do? Matter of fact, um, in the exile uh, uh, prophets, it says that they took them to Babylon, stripped them naked, marched them down the street, that is the people of God, in order to put them to shame before their God. Why? Because they wanted to convince people that the words, they wanted to convince Israel that the words of their God really didn't work. And his, their God would leave them on the wrong side of justice. Did you know that that work of the adversary has not changed? If there is any echoing thing, echoing thing, echoing thing that started in the Garden of Eden, it is that 
God really doesn't mean what he said about you. And at the end of it all, you're going to be left on the wrong side of the equation. But Paul says, I have an antecedent. Or I have, I have something that fights right against that. And that is I have an expectation and earnest hope. And I know that I will not be left to shame. Now why, when you go into a court system, why would that be important? Hebrews chapter 6, listen to me. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater than himself, he made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to tell you what that was in just a moment. It comes from Genesis 14. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Genesis 14. Okay? And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than himself. That was, listen to me. That was an ancient Near Eastern thing. That if you got in an argument with somebody, the way it was resolved is to call in somebody that was greater that could have the final word on it. He says, so men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath. Everybody say oath. An oath given and confirmation as an end to every dispute. In other words, there is the final word. Somebody has it. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs that the people he promised of the promise. Everybody say promise. Okay, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, that is promise and oath, he just mentioned, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. You know why he says that? He says, when God calls a witness, he says, let me see, I made a promise and I made an oath and you're wondering about it. So who can I call to witness this that's greater? Oh, there's not anybody. I'm the greatest. God can't lie. A thousand years ago, I heard some, you know, because you can say, well, what if God said frogs are purple? They would be purple. You see, when God speaks, the Bible says creative life and force is released. God cannot lie fundamentally because of the nature of what happens when he speaks. When something isn't a way, should he say it, it would become that way. God, that's a fun proposition to consider. As, as we think about that, okay? He interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, listen to this, that we who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the, here it comes, hope set before us. This hope that we have as an anchor to the soul. Okay, so here's the sermon I didn't prepare for. Everyone look this way and say it out loud with me. Say hope is a refuge. Say it again. Hope is a refuge I can run to. Hope is an anchor that holds. Say that to me again. Hope is a refuge I can run to. Hope is an anchor that holds. And let's talk about why. Okay? This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Boy, there's just a great study there to go on. But I want to get back to this whole hope, promise, and oath. You want to know where he said he, he first said it? He first said it to Abraham. Now listen, the scripture's not going to be up there. It's in Genesis 14. Abraham has gone out. He's the father of faith in the Old Testament. He goes out and he fights a battle with a, a local uh, a king. And he comes away and the king says, well, here, take all this stuff. And, and God and Abraham, first time, first time this was recorded, he says, no, I've lifted my hand or sworn an oath. It's interchangeable concept. Whenever an oath was mentioned, an uplifted hand was supposed. That was, that was just, you would understand that. 
that the uplifted hand was supposed. And so alternately translated, he says, I've lifted my hand and sworn an oath before the Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth. And it says, and God saw, and in keeping with what we just read from Hebrews, in Genesis 14 and 15, God says, now as far as you can see, Here's what the oath I'm making. This is my oath. You've made an oath. You've responded. You've lifted your hand and made an oath. And now here's what I'm doing back from heaven's side of the equation. 400 years later, the people, Abraham's descendants, would become known as the people of Israel. They would live in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. In back to Genesis 15, God said, 400 years from now, I'm going to bring them to this land. Sure enough, clock ticks down. It's 400 years, and there are reasons why. Don't have time to go into. Moses is on the scene. Exodus chapter 6, Moses says, I'm bringing all these slaves out, but they don't want to follow. They still think they're slaves. What should I tell them? God says, tell them. That I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm bringing them into the land which I swore an oath and promised, which I lifted my hand. I've taught on this here a thousand times. It's why I asked the worship team to choose that last song this morning because I knew I wanted to get here, just didn't know how I'd get here. I've lifted my hand because you see, later on, 1,800 years later, the Son of God would come and say, here's what the church does. Whatever they make binding on earth, and the implication is an oath, the implication is the only way an oath was made, an uplifted hand, shall be made binding in heaven. That is on God's side of the equation. What happened in the story of Abraham that we learn 400 years apart? In Exodus 6, God did not say, I'm bringing, listen to me, I'm done. Listen to me. God did not say, I'm bringing you into the land that I lifted, that that when then Abraham lifted his hand. God said, I'm bringing you into the land that I promised on the day I lifted my hand. What does does that mean? Um, Blake, you shouldn't have come back from Afghanistan or Pakistan. Come up here, son. I need to borrow you for a second. You can stop about halfway up that ramp, and that way it'll put me, you're on earth, I'm in heaven, you're Abraham, I'm God. Abraham lifted his hand before the Lord God, possessor heaven and earth. And what happened is 400 years later, the way you made an oath binding in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was bilateral, two people, always took two. And one would reach across, and often they'd cut their hand, and they would say, listen, uh, you make an oath, and the other one say, I make that oath, and I make it binding. What we learn 400 years later is that God says, he said, I'm not bringing you into the land that Abraham, on the day Abraham lifted his hand, he said, I lifted my hand. Which means while Abraham was standing in the wilderness lifting his hand in a dimension we could not see, there was a God saying, I see that hand and that I'm bringing, I'm making promises and pledges. Now, why is that important? Abraham, thank you. Hebrews says, I'm, I, I want to tell you something. When God makes a promise, he stands by it. When he makes an oath, he stands by it. Why is that important? Luke chapter 1. And oh my, how do we get back to the Christmas story? Verse 5. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I'm not reading you the next verse. It says they were barren. They were both north of 85 years old. They were not young. They were old. They didn't have any children. And Zacharias was a priest who drew lots, went in to offer sacrifices to the presence of the Lord. An angel appears to him, sent from God, and says, Zacharias, I have news to bring you. And he was stunned by it. He said, what is that? He says, you're going to have a child. He says, but I am old. Now, every year I mention this, I look for the opportunity to mention it. Because it's one of the funnest, I know that's not a word, stories in scripture. Listen, Gabriel, the angel, is so caught off guard, I believe, I can't wait to talk to him at the end of it all, that he's without any good comebacks. If you're married, you'll know what it's like to be in a good argument and then lose with a bad comeback. It's happened to me many times. That, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're just, don't have anything good to say. And you know when whatever words come out of your mouth, they're loser words in the argument. I've known that. And I'm sitting there thinking while my lips are moving, that's lame. That just, that won't work. I lost right now. I lost. Gabriel responds with that when, he, when, when Zechariah says, but I'm old. And he says, I'm Gabriel. Now, that's, that's not what he should have said. Because Gabriel came from a place, listen, that when God speaks, it happens. Why? It's immutable. There's you, Gabriel's never seen a time when God said something. God said, let there be stars. Let there be the earth. Let there be water. Let there be giraffes. I mean, just the list was endless. And it happened. He never had one time. And so he came and said, here's what God said. You're a priest. And he was caught off guard by, well, I don't know if God really means it. Ah, I'm Gabriel and you're not going to talk anymore. That's what it says. Go read it. Nine months, he doesn't speak. Nine months later, Elizabeth. But why is this important? It's important because the name Zacharias means remembered of the Lord or the promise of God. And it's important because the name Elizabeth means the oath of God. We just read those two words in more of a theological treatment. In Hebrews 6, it says, here's why you're going to have hope. Because we see a God that makes promises and he remembers them and a God that makes oaths and he stands on them. And this Christmas story brings us hope sewn into the poetry when he says, let me find two people who think that I've forgotten them and think my oath to them's not good. John the Baptist is born through them. Nine months later, Zechariah is allowed to speak on the day that he's born. It's a fun story. Go read it. On the day that John the Baptist is born, his mouth opens and he stands and he speaks for the first time in nine months. And I think he's had a lot of mental practice about what he should have said to Gabriel when the announcement was made. And so here it comes, verse 68, his mouth, first words out of his mouth. I believe he's been practicing. He says, "Mm." see if Gabriel would have said to him, this is a rewind, Johnny. I believe it's what he would have said. If I could have a do-over nine months ago, I can't tell that brother what I would say. Here it comes. Gabriel shows up and says, God has sent me, and he said, you're going to have a child. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. How many wish they had a do-over for when you've blown it? 
When God's whispering something, see, because he's whispering hope in your heart today. He's already started. He's already begun to do that. And you've already given to push back, but you don't know my current circumstances. You don't know the reality. You don't know the courts of life that have shown up against me and present the evidence that things are going to be a certain way. Listen to me. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. We'll talk about that next week. From old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our Father, I love that. Come on back, Dan. The priest would typically do things in the inner courts that would involve a lot of actions. One was being an ambassador between God and man with uplifted hands of worship. I wrote something before I came out here. Where is it? Amanda, I'm going to say this two or three times. It's long, but I want to see if we can get it. Hope is when we stand before the court of our circumstances, we have the confidence to announce they do not have the final word. Hope is when we stand before the court. I want to tell you next, well, I can't tell you next week. I have to move on. Why the word confidence, Paul uses it. Uh, in the faith, I'm confident I will not be ashamed. I'm confident that these circumstances will not have the final word. When we stand before the court of our circumstances, we have the confidence to announce they will not have the final word. I believe this old priest, after witnessing what he did for nine months, one part it says he was seated and they went over by him. I believe when the clock ticked, the baby was born. I believe... What he did was this. Because, see, a priest would not talk about oath and covenant without making some sort of symbolic gesture. It's the same language used. Johnny, I believe nine months later, he stood up. Do you have those words you can put up there for me? Start at verse 68, Amanda. The baby was born, they came over and asked, And I believe that he stood up. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Sir, I'm just going to pick some verses that I didn't even read. Because for 700 years since Isaiah spoke, we've sat in darkness. But a light has begun to shine. That's the closing statement of this section. Go read it when you go home. And I stand with hands uplifted, even though nine months ago when the pronouncement of an 85-year-long circumstance had sustained itself in such physical reality that the hope that I would ever had a child was so far removed from my mind. The courts of life had judged. We were barren. We would have no heir. What else was I to say? But oh, that I could revisit that moment because I understand now. 
that I serve a God who when he makes a promise, he stands on an oath. That when God speaks, he stands on it. He doesn't need anyone greater than himself to make it good. And so I stand here and I say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who long ago when he spoke this and that and certain things, I, we were standing in darkness in Isaiah 9, but he said there would be a people who would be in darkness and a light would shine into that darkness. And even though I'm standing here on the edge of the end of 700 years of darkness, I will not allow the courts of circumstance in this world to have the final word. I'm going to lift up holy hands of oath and covenant. Can I tell you that there's no greater expression of hope than when a child of God stands and says, I'm going to lift my hands like I am not ashamed. (laughs) I'm going to lift my hands because you don't have the final word. I'm going to shout for joy at the mention of his name. I've come to worship. I've come to worship. I never even thought of this. I'm going to sing my song. Like what? See, I just thought this was a great word, like I'm not ashamed. I never even thought of the potential of Paul's theology. Like I am unashamed. There are people standing in this place. There are people watching online. Maybe you've never even done it before. But for the first time, you're going to take that hand and say, I don't know everything that that preacher said. And that ADD sermon took me every place and he lost me five times. That's all right. Let's land right here. Just land right here and take my word for it. That I believe these physical acts of worship that are still sustained even under the new covenant. That as I was standing over here and Blake was standing there. I believe that there's a God that still leans forward on his throne and says, Son, when you stand in worship and you have the audacity to assume there's hope for light while the darkness is still there. I am that God that still reaches back across and said, I will make good on my word to you. That's hope. That's hope. And that's what we celebrate at the arrival of a baby and a manger. Would you stand to your feet? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.